Well, good morning. If you were here last week for Baptism Sunday, uh, man, what a day. 41 people were baptized last Sunday uh, in the pool. And you can clap. Just like, I'm not sure. We, uh, we started a series that we're continuing, kind of started it last week, called If Grace is True. Now, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, I hope grace is true. Now, uh, there are, uh, I know, some things um, in life, especially around church stuff, uh, that have a tendency to stay just as a word. And unfortunately, grace is one of those things that has a tendency to just stay as a word. You've probably driven down the street and you've seen uh, the name on a church building, and it's Grace Church. Um, you've probably met a girl, and her name was Grace. If you met a boy and his name was Grace, that's weird, but all right. Uh, maybe you have a practice as a family before you sit down to eat at McDonald's. Uh, <laughs> hope you eat at home around the table sometimes, but you know, whenever you sit down to eat, and before everyone dives in, you, maybe you have this little practice where you say, oh, wait, wait, everybody, we have to say Grace, Grace right? Um, What I have experienced in terms of people understanding and appropriating grace into their life is that when they hear the word grace, what they usually think that that means is simply uh, that you need to be nicer. How many of you would like to be nicer in your life? How many of you like it if other people in your life would be nicer? (laughs) You you think, you know, that's just it. I, I just need to be uh, a little bit nicer. Uh, that's not uh, the meaning of the word grace or the experience of the word grace. What I hope happens as we go through this series, and I hope you'll be here uh, every week because this, this could be life-changing for you, is that you'll, uh, you'll see that word move from something, maybe you just heard that word, uh, and it moves from being a word into being a reality that you live into in your life. Now, some of you had the experience before you were a Christian and you knew someone who was a Christian. And the reason you are a Christian, in fact, several people baptized last week, the reason they were there is because of somebody else who's part of our church who shared their faith with them. And that's why they got baptized. But some of you, you had that experience. You, you met somebody before you're a Christian and you watched them. And you watched their life and you thought, man, I like, I like that person. What, what's so unique about them? And they had a sense of courage and a sense of peace and a sense of kindness to people that you didn't have. And you thought to yourself at some point, you thought, you know what? If I were going to be a Christian, I'd be like that person. I'd be a Christian like her. I'd be a Christian like him. And the thing that made that, you need to understand this, and I, I want this to get worked into your life. The thing that made that person that way is this thing we're going to talk about, grace. Uh, grace is like, uh, it's, like the, it's like nitrous fuel for your soul. I'm not a car guy, uh, but I know, uh, especially in high school, uh, maybe this is illegal now, I don't know. These guys would brag and they would say, I put a nitrous system on my car, right? Do you know what this is? You put a tank with nitrogen, I guess, is that right, Danny? Dan- Nit- nitrous oxide, thank you. See, I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, nitrogen, you probably blow up the car, right? Uh, not nitrogen, nitrous oxide, and then they push a button, bam, that car just takes off. The power in that car is multiplied multiple times. Grace is like that. 
We're going to learn about that together. Now I want you to stand with me. We're going to read out of the scriptures. Uh, out of respect for God's word, we'll stand. I'll read. If you have a Bible, please leave it open here. This is the letter that Paul wrote to uh, the Ephesians. And this is, the, this is what he wrote to you. Hear these, hear these words of the Lord. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by, what's the word? Grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his, what's the word? Grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by what? Grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that you could not boast. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing. Well, if you've been around here, you've heard us talk about the mission of our church. The mission of our church is actually very simple. It's not a complicated thing. Uh, the, it's why we do what we do. It's why we have a kids' ministry. It's why we do a back-to-school fair. It's why this gathering happens every week. Everything that we do is about this mission. And the mission is simply that we want to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Now, let me, let me translate that for you in a, a really practical way. Here's what we hope happens in your life is that you discover that there's a God who created you and loves you, and you get a deeper and deeper sense of God's reality in your life, and it becomes more and more the foundation of your life, that you have something bigger than you that you're giving yourself to, and you understand that God loves you, and that grows in your soul like a vine and just takes over your entire life. And then that you would, uh, that you would learn to love some people and you'd let a few people in. Now, I'm not saying you'd let everybody in because your neighbor might be weird and you don't want to let them in. I get it. But you, you, you let a few people in and you learn to open your heart to people and you learn to love people and let people love you. And what you realize is I cannot do this alone. I have to have some help. And you, you do that. And then uh, you serve people. It's just a normal thing for you. You find a place to serve. Either you work in our kids' ministry or student ministry, or maybe you tutor someone at a school, or you pull weeds in the community garden, they need help. You, you do something. It's just it's something that you put into your calendar that you do all the time. Now listen, I'm going to tell you something about those three things that's very important. If you don't put those things into your calendar, they will not end up in your life. You won't love God more. It'll be a nice idea. You won't love people. You won't serve. You have to put those things in your calendar. In fact, why we get together in this room is in your calendar every week, you can have a space and a time dedicated to helping you experience and know and grow in the love of God for you. I come every week, and I know I do my thing here, but I come, I come to get refueled and re-inspired. And here's what I, here's what I know about that mission, though, uh, that it takes to fuel that mission. You have to have grace. Grace is the fuel of the church's mission. Now, I'm not, when I say the church's mission, I'm not talking about an organization. You know who the church is? You. Grace is the fuel of the church's mission. Because here's what the grace of God is. The grace of God is the sacrificial love of God. And the 
The sacrificial love of God brings us Jesus into the world. And so when we get the grace of God, we get everything that Jesus has. And Jesus had no greater love than his Father's love. And he loved his disciples like he loved himself and gave himself up for them. And he was a servant. He took on the role of a servant. So if you get the grace of God, you'll get everything that Jesus has. And I want you to have absolutely everything that Jesus had. But the writer to the Hebrews in the, the, the New Testament, this, he said this interesting thing at the end of his letter. We'll throw it on the screen. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Now listen, that implies that you could miss the grace of God. Do, do you recognize that the letter to Hebrews was written to religious people who had grown up around church stuff? And he says, religious people who've grown up around church stuff, you could miss the grace of God. Growing up around all this stuff is not some guarantee that you are going to have uh, the grace of God as a part of your life. In fact, this is, it's all the way through the Bible. Paul opens all of his letters, and he starts out by saying, the most important thing I want you to know is, listen, grace and peace to you. In other words, it starts with grace and God's peace. When John writes his letter about, when he writes his biography of the life of Jesus, that John chapter 1, you can read it later today, uh, you go to John chapter 1 and you read, Jesus uh, was full of grace and truth. Uh, this is, I mean, it's all the way through the Bible, the grace of God. What, what's, a, what's a life like, though, that misses the grace of God? Well, a life that misses the grace of God, we would call that a graceless life, right? A life, a heart that has had the grace of God subtracted from it. My daughter is seven, and she's been in first grade, and she's been learning uh, math. And so we drive down the road, school's out here in just a few days, and we would drive down the road, and she would have her paper, and she would say, Dad, uh, I am, I'm learning about math, and I'm learning about subtraction. And Dad, and she would have this list of problems, and Dad, uh, 10, what's 10 less 3? And we would add it up, I'd use your fingers and toes, oh, 7, Dad. A life, a heart, less grace means you have a graceless life. You have a life that misses the grace of God. And you don't want to have a life that misses the grace of God. Now, you might say, well, that's, I, I, that's, that's a word. I mean, graceless. I mean, are you, are you trying to say that I'm just, if I'm that way, that I'm a mean person? No, no. It, what happens when you miss the grace of God is you develop an outlook on your life that makes it even harder for you to get the grace of God, and you miss it even more. One of the outlooks that we develop when we miss the grace of God uh, as we develop what I would call a, a treadmill outlook on life. Uh, you know what a treadmill is? Maybe you belong to a gym or the YMCA. And uh, if you do, if you don't know what a treadmill is, I'm going to explain it to you. You go back in the back where all the machines are, where all the, the like, torture devices are. And, and you, go, you go back there, and there's this machine, and it has this rubber thing that's on this loop. And you push a button, and it just moves. And you can make a whole lot of distance on this treadmill, but you go nowhere. In fact, that's what a treadmill is. It's motion without a destination. That's some people's lives, right? <laughs> motion without a destination. I'm moving, but I am getting absolutely nowhere. You, without, in a graceless life, what happens is you have motion, but nowhere to go. You're, you're just doing the grind. You're going one foot in front of the other, and you, but you're not going anywhere. You're not... You're not moving toward any destination that's bigger or greater than you. And you assume that this is life. And it's a graceless kind of existence. It's boring. 
Here's the God of creativity and variety, and your life is boring when you have a treadmill outlet. Now, uh, you, may, you may not know what boring is. I'll tell you what boring is if you need a, a way to physically see boring. What you do is you get in your car, and you drive down. I go to I-70, go west, start at Topeka, Kansas, and then drive on I-70 all the way to Colorado. Listen, it is quite literally a straight line for hundreds of miles. If you could fall asleep and tie the steering wheel down and take a nap and then look up in about three hours, you would still be moving straight. If you could possibly make that work, you could do that because you see a cow and a post and a field and then another cow and another post. And, a field. and the, the, the scenery does not change. It's as flat as a pancake. It's incredibly boring. And here's the God of grace and variety and creativity. And God's anything but boring. If you actually get grace, your life actually takes on variety. Well, you can also have, though, you can have, I'll call it a vacation outlook. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you guys what these guys are doing, okay? Because you're not doing it, but they are, okay? So I'm just going to talk to you, you guys just listening. So well, here's what happens with a vacation outlook, okay? What happens is, is you're always looking for one more thing or one more experience that's going to somehow give you the rest and the peace that you want. Now, I know you guys aren't doing this, but they're doing it. You aren't. And so you're always one experience or one trip or one weekend away or one thing in the summer that's going to make it a little bit better for you and everything's going to be fine. Because here's what you're doing with the vacation outlook. You're counting on those trips and those experiences to give you what only the grace of God can give you. And so you don't believe that you need grace, but it's a graceless kind of existence. Now listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not against vacation, okay? I know you guys, these guys are the ones doing it. I'm not against vacation, and we'll, our family will take one, but I am against you missing the grace of God and counting on some experience to provide you the rest and the peace that you want in your heart. Now, one of the other outlooks that we develop is, is uh, I'll call it the shame outlook. There are a lot of people writing about this today, about shame. You can go online and research it and find all kinds of things about shame, but here's what shame, here's what shame is. Shame is the message, not that you've done something wrong, but it's that you are wrong that there's something defective about you. That there's a flaw at the start of who you are. And I would argue it, shame is probably uh, the second most powerful force in the world. I'd say the most powerful force in the world is love. But shame is a close, close second. Because it drives people. Here's, here's what shame does. Shame takes good things and it, it weaponizes them. Now, do you know what I mean when I say that, weaponize? I, it's every movie, action movie you've ever seen, superhero movie you've ever seen. There's some substance, and it's this thing a scientist creates. It's good. It can heal cancer or whatever. And then some evil person gets a hold of the substance, and they weaponize it. And then the rest of the movie is about the hero or superhero stopping this thing that's been weaponized from wiping out the entire universe, right? It's like every movie you've ever seen, right? And here's what's happened for a lot of us is... You've had things like relationships get weaponized. So you had something happen with a parent, or you had something happen with your child, or you had a, a marriage that didn't work, or you're in a toxic work environment. And what happened is that relationship, that's a good thing to be in relationship with someone else, but it gets weaponized, and so you decide... That I can't trust people anymore. Here's this beautiful thing, trust, that's been weaponized, and now it's in, in, in a shame outlook. It's a graceless existence. 
But here's the thing I think is even more damaging than that, especially if you grow up around church stuff, is that church stuff, that God, that the Bible, that uh, faith in God, that trust in Jesus gets weaponized and used against you so that you say, I want nothing to do with this. I don't, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And these are, these are the kinds of outlooks that will cause you to miss the grace of God. You can miss the grace of God. You can absolutely miss the grace of God. Now, here's what I know. I, I know that there are, I'll call it a couple f- fuels. I, I'm trying to find a better word for that, but this might be the word. Fuels that, that make the heart go. Um, if you choose the one, you cannot have the other. If you use the one, the other one will not work. And the two fuels are grace and performance. And performance is kind of like leaded fuel. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember when you could put leaded fuel in a car. Uh, it's been outlawed. I think it was outlawed in the late 80s, early 90s, something like that. Uh, because lead is poison and will kill you. Right? So for years, we were poisoning ourselves. And I researched this. I was, I was kind of fascinated. Why did that happen? And way back when cars were, were being developed in the early 1900s, um, they discovered that when you put gasoline in them, they created engine knock. You know how that knock, knock, knock on that kind of sound? Maybe, maybe you're looking at me like, what are you talking about? Okay, ask somebody who's a car guy. I'll explain it to you, right? But they, they found that they had to have something because uh, people were calling, or not calling, but they were driving because they had no phones. And they'd go and they'd say, my engine's making this noise. Something's wrong with the car you sold me. And what they discovered was that it was the fuel. And so they tried to develop a way to re- eliminate engine knock. And what they actually found was that they could use an alcohol-derived form of uh, power and that it eliminated engine knock. But someone discovered that if you added lead to gasoline, it eliminated engine knock. Now, they knew at the time that it was poison and that people would die from handling it. That's why you don't shove, that's why your mom told you not to shove your lead pencil into your brother, right? Because it'd kill you. (laughs) But here's what happened. 1923, uh, (laughs) I looked it up. Someone discovered, they added up how many cars had been sold, how many gallons people used in an average week, and how much uh, it would cost, and they found that if they added lead to gasoline, that their, if they were the ones that sold it, that they would make in 1923 $36 million, right? That'd be great today, but 1920, what is that, like a billion bucks? So guess what happened? We did not use alcohol, we used lead. And there was a great kind of cover-up, if you research this, you'll find it. It's kind of great cover-up about lead, Lead for a while eliminated engine knock, but it was corrosive to the environment. In fact, the first factory in New Jersey that started producing leaded gasoline, uh, in the first few months there were men who died and they, because they were poisoned by the lead, but they just kept using it until the late 80s, early 90s, and when we finally got outlawed, now you can no longer have lead. Listen, performance is to the heart what leaded gasoline is to the car. It will eliminate heart knock for a little while, right? Just for a little bit. You'll go, okay, I did good. God's off my back. My conscience is easy. I, it's okay. But it is corrosive to the heart, and it is corrosive to the environment. And what will happen if you, if you rely on performance and not grace is you will eventually leave faith. People leave graceless faith. You probably have somebody in your family, and man, they started out right, and, or maybe it was your kid. 
and you wanted them to know God, and you brought them to church. And, but, the, but what they experienced was a weaponized version of religiosity or spirituality, and they experienced it as graceless, and people leave graceless faith. They don't want anything to do with it because it eliminates the heart knock for a little while, but eventually the corrosion ca- catches up with your heart and with your soul. That's exactly what happened. So here's what Paul says. He says, we're all in the same boat in Ephesians. He says, we're all trying to avoid pain, and we're all trying to get something better. In fact, if you want to understand what motivates people, man, those are the things that motivate people there. We want to avoid pain, and we want something better in our life. And so what Paul says is that uh, in order to to avoid pain and to get something better, uh, that we we try on these strategies. He calls them sin. Now, in our context, uh, avoiding pain and getting something better, in our context, it's actually a very bad thing because our context is we live in a consumer society where we are taught from the time we are little. When you can go in the grocery store at the age of seven, you can go into town and country, and you can get your own little basket that says customer in training. You're taught from the very earliest days that you can find a product to plug the thing that is in your soul that will alleviate the pain and get you something better. Now you go, that's not, that's not, it's not true. Listen, I have a friend, uh, my wife and I have a friend, a couple, she's a follower of Jesus, but she works in an ad agency. In fact, when Walmart rebranded a few years ago, her team was responsible for rebranding Walmart. And when they did that, it's really interesting, she was telling us about it, is they sent a team of people in an RV, they funded this thing, her and a guy with a video camera and someone who's a professional writer, and they went out and they surveyed all these moms about all of their life, and they videoed them, and they made this real moving, heartwarming video. You're like, oh, this is right. This is like being a mom. It's so cute. But she said the reason they did that is so they could sell them soap. <laughs> it was not to be all heartwarming. It was to sell them something. And you, in our context, see, we think we can avoid the pain by buying something. See, it, it, we, think we, can, we think we can take care of the heart knock by getting some, pro- some product. And it does not take care of the heart knock. Listen, your great-grandma was a lot tougher than you and I. Especially if you're an iron worker or you have a big truck. <laughs> Do you know why? Because she said, you know what? In life, there is going to be pain and it's going to hurt. That's part of life. And that there, you need something better. And more often than not, she would look to God and go, only God can provide me with something better. Only the grace of God. We don't believe that. Because our context, you can buy something that will ease the pain. So here's what we do. Paul says we develop these strategies, and we, we're, we're trying to avoid the pain, and the strategy we employ is we decide to sin. But that when we sin, what it does is it kills us, because Paul says we are dead in our transgressions and our sins. Now, this is important that you get this. Our, our transgressions are the, the choices that we have made that have taken us down the wrong path. I tried the drugs I liked them, they numbed me from the pain, now they have me. Now insert whatever choices you have made that have taken you down the wrong path. Paul says our transgressions. And our sins, sin is, uh, the word there, it means, uh, it's from archery, and it means that we've made the bullseye of our life something other than God. And the result of that is that we become, we become dead on the inside. And these are all strategies to avoid our pain. But here's what Paul says, the result always is that you become a follower and a puppet. He says, that you, he says that you follow the ways of this world. You, you basically did what everybody else is doing. Remember when you were 12 and your mother would say to you, if everybody jumped off of a cliff, would you jump off of a cliff? And you know what your 12-year-old self said? Yeah, I would. 
And what Paul says is that sin causes us to be our 12-year-old self that says, I'll do what everybody else is doing. And we become a, a follower who's just led to our death. And then we become a puppet because we're under the power, Paul calls it, the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That He's talking about Satan. He's saying, and, and all the forces of evil. That we think that we are free and we're doing whatever we want, but we are being controlled and used. Paul says, this is, I, I get, and then listen, I get it, you want to avoid pain. And you don't know what else to do. But the end result is that you are dead inside, and so you spend tremendous energy trying to deal with the deadness that you feel on the inside and then paul says one of the strategies we employ to try and gain something better is he says he calls it this he says we we try to gratify the cravings of our flesh and we follow its desires and our thoughts we think our desires will lead us to the peace that we want and so we we follow them and so either we here's what we say here's the internal dialogue we say well if life is going to hurt me then at least i need to feel good and whether it's a potato chip or a pumpkin donut, whether it's a deal or a drug, whether you turn life into a giant fair or you have an affair, I mean, you do something because you're saying, I've got to feel something because life is so incredibly hard. But none of those things work. They are like leaded fuel. And then Paul says this. He says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. In other words, we had become part of the problem. If you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not this ugly thing. Is The wrath of God is... God's act in love to destroy the things that would destroy people. And we were a part of that. We were part of the problem. And we didn't even see it. And then there's the beautiful, this is the, one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. In, chap, in, in verse 4, he says, but, verse 4, but, it's the best but you will see all day long. I, I'm telling you, it's the, <laughs> when I was, and I had this strategy to try and avoid pain and get something better when, I, when it resulted in me being dead inside when I was, knew I was part of the problem, I was making things worse, I couldn't rescue myself, I couldn't do any of that, but God in his love, in his love, who is rich in mercy. Now here's the, here's the word picture he gives, okay? You need to get this. When he says he's rich in, he, he's, he's rich in love, it's like a kennel. You ever been to a kennel? And one of the kennels where they euthanize the dogs, and you go back in the back, and there's that lonely dog that nobody wants. And you can see the dog, he just kind of has his head down and won't. When we are dead inside, we are the dog in the cage. And this is what Paul says, but God, in his great love for us, went into the kennel, went right past all the other dogs, and went, I want that one right there. That's the one I want. I'll take that one. And that God is rich in mercy. I've only uh, actually had a a relationship with someone who's very, very wealthy uh, one time, and uh, this gentleman friend uh, uh, befriended me when I was a a, a 20-some-odd-year-old in our church. And um, I I don't live that kind of life. I don't have that kind of money. But he was just, uh, he was very, very wealthy. And every time we would go out to eat, he would always pay. I I would, I want to pay. No, no, we got it. Uh, it was kind of a routine thing, not all the time, but he would see me, and he would ha- shake my hand when he would say goodbye, and in his hand would be a folded-up 20, or a folded-up 50, or sometimes a folded-up 100. And he had, he had riches, so there was an overflow that didn't hurt his well-being. <laughs> this is the, Paul says God is rich in mercy, that, that God 
has an overflow of mercy that he can give away that does not hurt his well-being. And he gives it to you. And he gives it to you freely. And so then Paul says, verse 5, And so he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. Because if you have your Bible open, it is by, what's the word? Grace. grace that you have been saved. The word grace, you know what it means? It's a Greek word. It's a Greek word means charis. We named our daughter Carrington, a derivative of that. It means gift. But here's what, here's, what a lot of, here's what I know a lot of people do with gifts. It's, it's under the tree. And when the gift is under the tree, what are you supposed to do with the gift eventually? Right, you open it. But what I found is that some people, they just come on Sunday and they look at the gift. Ooh, look at the, you see the gift up there? Or they hear other people talk about how they opened the gift and they're jealous and they go, how come she got the gift open? How come I can never get the gift open? Or they look at the, and they say, they, well, the name tag doesn't have my name on it, it's not for me. Nobody would ever give me a gift. Or they may even come up to the gift and they pick it up and they shake it and they try and see what's inside and they go, man, I bet there's a great gift in there, but it's not for me. I'll put it down. And so what happens when you do that is you go back to your strategies for avoiding pain and finding something better and you try to perform one more time. But it's a gift. Do you know what you do with the gift? You open it! <laughs> you open it. Now listen, I said this in the first service. I'm going to say it again. If it offends you, I'm sorry. If, if, uh, if, this was a, if our average pigmentation in this room was darker, you would have said amen right there. <laughs> so you could say amen. Because the gift is for you. So you go to the tree and you pick the gift up and you look on the name tag and it has your name on it and you rip the paper off. Don't worry about the paper. God doesn't care about the paper. He just wants you to get the gift that's on the inside and you take the gift and you own the gift and it changes everything about you because I got the gift now. Because he goes on and he says, listen, it's by grace you're saved, not by, not by your works, not by your performance, or you'd boast. So I have to ask you, What's the performance that you are counting on to save you? I mean, which performance is it? I've yet to meet somebody um, who they perform equally well in every area of their life. I'll, I'll meet somebody and they're fantastically successful at their job and maybe they get promotion after promotion after promotion and maybe they go start their own business and they make thousands and then millions of dollars and they're super successful and they're doing they're at the top of their game but guess what they're performing well in that they're a terrible parent or they're on their fifth marriage or i've met people who they've been married for 63 years and you go i want that kind of love and they're dirt poor because they're terrible at business <laughs> they're terrible at their job never made a, hardly a red cent in their life what, what's the performance that you're counting on that's going to be your redeeming act? What, what do you, is it your parenting? I mean, some of you, you have invested your life in your children, and then they go and do something, and you go, what? What have I done wrong? Are you counting on that? What, what, I mean, what in the world are you, what's going to be your redeeming act? Listen, the message of grace is that your performance is not what God is counting on. What God does is he sees the performance of Jesus on your behalf, and he credits that to you. 
as a gift and says, I'm not counting on that. You don't have to perform anymore. You don't have to use that fuel source that's going to eliminate heart knock for a little bit, but it's not going to end the problem. And then once you are in, once you are in with grace, you are in. <laughs> you never again have to go, am I in? Am I not in? Does God love me? Does God not love me? It's not, not about, it no longer becomes about how you feel about yourself. It's what you go, no, that's what God did. So it's grace. And then you find, it find when, you, when, when the grace moves beyond a word to an experience that you live in your heart and in your life, you sing this song and you sing it in a different way. You know the song. Sing it with me. Amazing grace. Sing it like you mean it. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see then you know this next verse when we've been there ten thousand years bright shining as the sun we've no less days to sing God's grace than when we Stand, I want to pray for you. Hold out your hands if you want grace. God, we receive from you as a gift your grace. God, we have tried the strategies of numbing our pain. We have tried the strategies of finding something better by indulging every desire. And we have found that we are dead on the inside, and so we cannot rescue and save ourselves, and so we have to have the grace of God. So we change our mind. We repent of the ways we have been going about our life to try and make it better. And we want grace to be the fuel of our heart, not performance. Thank you for grace. Thank you that your love is a gift and that we receive it. So we receive it right now. And all God's people that want God's grace said, Amen. Amen. You are sent from this place now to love God with all of your heart. Love people and serve the world. Maybe you need to talk to somebody, pray with somebody about this today, things in your life. Our prayer team will be down front. See you next week.